right, well, a very warm welcome once again to all of you to the second Men's Discipleship Breakfast to All Saints of 2023. As I said, it's a great pleasure particularly to see a good handful of unfamiliar or not so familiar faces. And this is a great opportunity if you're visiting All Saints or just getting to know us or if you're in town because you're seeing uh, friends and relatives or you just want to come and try us out. And this is a great opportunity to see what we're about. Uh, We run a number of these events every year. And the focus this year is on the subject of work. Uh, We'll be drawing on some things we talked about last year where we uh, did touch on work actually at, at one point, but most of our effort was centered on a broader theme of pursuing maturity in Christ. And to that end, you have two handouts in front of you. You've got one, which was the first one from 2022, which is headed pursuing maturity in Christ with lots of fairly small text. I encourage you not to read that now. I'm going to skim through it extremely briefly in a moment. But it forms some of the background to what we're going to be doing today with the uh, other handout that is entitled Go to the Ant, Pursuing Productivity in the Workplace. Before we go any further, let me pray. And then I'm just going to introduce what we're going to do today And um, we'll see where we get to. So, if we may, let's pray together. Merciful and gracious God, thank you for one another. Thank you for this time you've blessed us with. We thank you for your word, the Bible, and for its richness and depth. Thank you for the lives you've given us, the friends you've given us, the families that we're blessed with. And we ask, Heavenly Father, that you would equip us in these next few minutes together to think and speak and listen to one another in such a way that our lives may be conformed more to Christ's likeness, and particularly in this area of work where we have been given such privileges, such responsibilities to participate in what you are doing in the world, and we want to make the best of them. So teach us, we pray, and help us today to be honest with ourselves, to be committed to Christ and to one another, and so to grow in faithfulness toward him. We pray in his name. Amen. Okay, so just a a brief recap, just to bring us all up to speed. A couple of months ago, the first Men's Discipleship Breakfast of 2023, we began this subject of work, which is going to occupy us for today and the next couple of sessions this year. And the title was Loving Your Work, and I said that in order to love our work, basically what we ought to be thinking is three things. We ought to work as for the Lord, at a, tasks that are demanding but achievable with 100% of our effort. And I was delighted that the discussion did what the discussion so often does on these occasions. And we ran out of time for all the stuff we wanted to talk about. So one of my aims today is to give us more time for conversation, particularly because a number of people, in response to my request at the end of last time, emailed in questions, and uh, those questions covered a a range of different themes, but there were a whole cluster of them focusing around the how-to of the third of those three points from last time. The with 100% of your focus and effort generated questions like, uh, how do we cultivate a good attitude to work, especially if it's work that we don't intrinsically find that interesting. How do we generate, and somebody coined a new term, stick-to-activity, I think was the word, stickability at tasks which are laborious. 
Uh, there were questions about uh, motivation, questions about practical aspects. How do we eliminate distractions? You'll be familiar if you're with this issue if you've ever read any productivity literature or business literature about productivity. In the last five or ten years, distraction has become a big theme of those things. And how do we avoid wasting time, particularly in contexts where there are lots of some legitimate and some illegitimate distractions? You know, the, um, the TV is not the same as your children. But if you're working at home, both of them have the capacity to distract you. And so how do we work our way through these so that we become as productive as we possibly could? And I want to say notwithstanding all the people who will sell you a product to fix this problem for you, there is no simple life hack. Uh, I actually find some of the, uh, what would you call them, tools, productivity tools out there in the marketplace somewhat useful. I have a a time tracker which I use to uh, measure how much time I spend at work and how much time I'm commuting and sleeping and doing other stuff. It doesn't measure everything, but I find it helpful for accountability and just to make sure that if I'm going to sit for an hour and a half watching YouTube videos, I have to tell myself that's what I did and therefore I feel less inclined to do it, mercifully. Um, But there is no simple life hack. And so I was wanting us to get practical and I'm not here to sell you anything. But what I want to do is to remind you of what we did talk about last year, which takes us to this rather long and detailed handout headed Pursuing Maturity in Christ. You'll remember that at the start, if you were here last year, I'm just going to recap what we talked about in the first session last year. I highlighted the puzzling reality that, as a pastor certainly, and we've probably noticed the same thing, all of us, in our lives and in the lives of others, sometimes and some people... Sometimes we grow, some people grow wonderfully, rapidly, consistently to great maturity and faithfulness in Christ over a period of months or years, whereas other people frankly stagnate or go backwards. And at times, both of those elements are mixed in our lives. There may have been times of significant Christian growth for you as a person, but times of great stagnation and aimlessness. And that prompts in all of us, should prompt in all of us, should certainly prompt in the mind of a pastor the question, well, why? What is it that makes the difference? And more importantly, what has God given us by way of divinely ordained structures to equip us to grow consistently towards maturity in Christ? And you remember I suggested that there is a divinely ordained, normative, paradigmatic structure in and through which human beings are designed to grow towards mature Christian faithfulness and men towards mature manhood, and that is childhood. What childhood is supposed to be is the time during which we get to mature manhood. And so by the time we're 16, 18, 20, we ought to be there. And the reason we're not is because we're failed children, all of us, Whatever our circumstances, we didn't make the most of the opportunities that our parents, however good or bad they may have been, provided for us. And so, bearing that in mind, one way to approach the task of growing to Christian maturity now as adult men, and I'm conscious I'm speaking to some teenagers here, lucky you, as Calvin wouldn't have said, that you can still try and get this more right than we all did. 
But one way to approach the task of growing to maturity in Christ is to ask us, well, what does childhood provide? Or more properly, what do great parents provide for their children during childhood? And then how can we re-instantiate those things in ourselves so that we can, in effect, have another go at growing up? And I suggested that what happens to children blessed and fortunate enough to have wonderful parents is that their parents provide them with five things, which are here enumerated, back on the first handout. Uh, I'll come to the structure, habits, character thing in a moment. But under the heading Pursuing Maturity in Christ in the introduction, what parents do is accurate self-diagnosis. They know what's wrong with you. They know you shouldn't be throwing the food all over the floor. They know your room shouldn't look like that. And they know you should be doing your homework more diligently and mowing the lawn when you're told to. Clear goals. Do your homework. Tidy your room. Mow the lawn. Well-defined structures within which you can learn the ropes, learn how to live in a productive and mature and faithful way. Then they track your progress. They're watching you. And those of you who had great parents may recognize this. And even those of you who uh, had parents who had some flaws which are now evident to you will be able to see that they were doing some of this. And finally... They, if they were great parents, were absolutely committed to the task of making sure you grew up. That's why good parents are always on your case. Now, this is what parents provide for children fortunate enough to be blessed with really godly mums and dads. Gentlemen, this is what we must now provide for ourselves if we are to have a second shot at this. And all of that is laid out in some detail, deliberately long form, not what I normally do, but I wanted you to have it in long form text in that handout headed Pursuing Maturity in Christ, which if you weren't here or you need a reminder, you can go away and read. Because I was always planning that we might come back to it on such an occasion as this, where what I want to do today is to deploy in relation to this specific question about pursuing productivity in the workplace, that, I think, divinely ordained and biblical approach to growing in maturity. In so doing, I hope to help all of us, back to structure, habit, character, to put in place structures which will, so to speak, fence us in, guardrails that will stop us wandering off the path into dissipated and unproductive activity. Those structures will then inculcate habits. You notice after you've told your son to do his homework 50 times and you've told him he's not having any dinner and he's not going out to shoot squirrels until he's finished it. Eventually he learns and then that forms, thirdly, character. He attains the God-given character of a man who likes to do his homework, get it done, do it well, so he can go outside and shoot squirrels, right? Because nods over here about the squirrels. So structures have the capacity to shape our habits and it's habits that shape our character. Now you also remember again if you were here last year for the second or maybe third um, session I talked about three uh, so-called perspectives borrowing from Christian theologian John Frame. Three perspectives on all of life 
normative, situational, existential. Just briefly, normative in this context has to do with teaching. It's what I'm going to be providing next. Situational has to do with all these habits and structures that we put in place in our lives to help us to be shaped appropriately so that we learn godly character. Existential has to do with relationships, which is why you're going to be talking with each other. My hope is that we'll be able to redeploy this childhood paradigm within the relationships that you have with the men around your table, existential, so that you can be accountable to them and to yourselves and to the Lord in learning some habits which will help you take a step or two or three forward in becoming more productive in the workplace, like the ant, to whom I now invite you to turn. I want to say some words briefly about each of these five sections of the book of Proverbs. And I've printed them on the handout here because... Uh, over the page, you've got some uh, boxes, some questions to answer, things to fill in together. But I want you to have all these passages to hand. There are other texts which might be relevant, but these, I think, are a good start for us. So Proverbs 6, verses 6 to 11. Let me read this and make a couple of brief comments. Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a bandit and want like an armed man. Sorry, I'm remembering the New International Version, which I grew up with. Poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. This is a very famous passage. It introduces the sluggard, who is the opposite of the productive person. Uh, more on that in a minute when we look at Proverbs. Um, uh, actually, no, I'll, I'll say a, a word or two about it now. The sluggard is the one who fails to use any of the opportunities that the Lord has given him for productive labor in the world. It is not merely um, uh, just a, an amoral pattern of life. It's a moral failing. To be a sluggard, the background to the problem, of course, is like everything else in Genesis 1 where God has given us the responsibility of filling and subduing the world. That's what work is. And so not to do that is disobedience. And the sluggard is one of a number of characters represented in the book of Proverbs who are just ungodly, like the fool, um, and so on and so forth. Notice a couple of things. Um, The sluggard is told to go to the ant. Here's a bit of, it's not quite natural theology, of course, because it's scripturally informed uh, viewing of the world. Consider the ant, and you might learn a thing or two, and in particular you'll notice verse 7 and 8, that she does what she's supposed to do with nobody telling her what to do. Now that's something to reflect on, and I'm going to ask you to reflect on it later in conversation with each other. Is that something in relation to which you have space to grow? Where you're quite capable of working hard when somebody's watching, but when they're not, well, you forget that the Lord is always watching and your focus drifts somewhat. Would you do at your desk at work all the things that you do at your desk at work if your boss was standing next to you? How much of your day are you ashamed of? Well, your master is actually standing next to you. 
Colossians 3, work as for the Lord, not for men. That's what Paul says to slaves. Verse 10, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And doesn't this sound like a little bit of an exaggeration? Poverty will come upon you. Because it's just like a little lie down. Who could be the harm of it? And then you realise that every decade is made up of a succession of minutes. And so is that part of what we tell ourselves? Oh, this doesn't really matter. Whereas if we turned it around and we thought, no, every minute does matter, we would soon find perhaps that we are building hours and days and weeks and years that are fruitful and productive one minute at a time. Your life can only slip away from you one second at a time or one minute at a time. You cannot work really hard for the next year. You can work really hard now for the next few seconds, the next minute. A little work, a little labour, or a little slumber, a little sleep. Proverbs 20, very brief. The sluggard does not... Plow in the autumn, he will seek at harvest and find nothing, obviously, because there's nothing there. In ancient Israel, you would sow wheat and barley seed in November or December. And so the, uh, the one who doesn't plow in the autumn is missing the opportunity to get the fields ready in the autumn. So, I don't know, September, October, for the sowing so that he'll have something to eat. And notice the significance of the delayed gratification or non-gratification. How much of our lack of productivity is shaped by a failure to see the future? This is why, actually, all of this is about living by faith. We're living by faith in at least two senses. First, we're looking to a future that we can't yet see. Yeah? Hebrews 11, faith is the certainty of things hoped for, the knowledge of things that are not seen because they haven't yet happened. And all that list of people who served Christ faithfully didn't see the fruit of what they worked for, certainly not at the time they worked for it. But we're also living by faith in the sense that we are, all of this is about faithfulness to the faithful one, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a danger of any conversation or any talk like this that it starts to become like a kind of pull yourself up by your bootstrap session it's not what we're talking about I take it that always we are conscious that we're redeemed by grace we have life and breath and breakfast and everything else by the grace of God we are united by faith with the Lord Jesus Christ by the spirit who indwells us the question we're asking is simply, what does it look like to walk along the path with our Lord Jesus? And what it looked like for him is what it should look like for us. And what it looked like for him was hard labor and three years of fairly spectacularly fruitful service towards the end of his life. Proverbs 10, <clears throat> verses 1 to 5. The Proverbs of Solomon. Now, this is significant just because this introduces a major new section in the book of Proverbs. You'll know that the first nine chapters are quite different in character from chapters 10 and following. And so it's striking how that important new section begins. It begins with some generalities. A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. What could be more general than that? Wisdom, folly, 
a man or a child who pleases his parents or does not. But then it gets more specific. How would a wise son make a glad father or a foolish son be a sorrow to his mother? Well, treasures gained by wickedness do not profit. That's what a fool would do. But righteousness delivers from death. Notice that treasures gained by wickedness. Well, what would be the opposite of that? That would be treasures gained by righteousness, which delivers from death. More specifically, verse 3, this is how the Lord provides for his people. The Lord doesn't let the righteous go hungry. You could drag verse 3 out of its context and think, well, the Lord will just provide everything I need because the Lord doesn't let the righteous go hungry, but he thwarts the craving of the wicked. So as long as I'm righteous, I'm going to be fine. The Lord will provide for me. Well, yes, that's true. But in what does that righteousness consist? Well, that's informed by the context, not just of verse 2, but of course, verse 4. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes, makes rich. So is it the Lord who does it, verse 3? Or is it the hand of the diligent who does it? And the answer, of course, is yes. We never deploy God's grace and sovereignty so as to undermine our responsibility to live lives of faithfulness. This is how we join the two together. And then more specifically still, let's not just talk about diligence and slack-handedness in the abstract, but he who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. This is, again, another fascinating detail for which it's helpful to know something about ancient Israelite farming practices. Most of the harvesting was done uh, in uh, the sort of spring, March, April, May. That's all the grains, basically. So wheat, barley... Uh, oats, um, one or two other things. And that's what most people grew. So what's with this he who gathers in summer thing? I mean, because the gathering, the harvesting, is generally done by the middle of May. Summer hasn't really begun in ancient Israel by this point. Well, the answer is there's a whole another bunch of crops that you could sow. Figs, grapes, and olives, all of which ripen later. So the one who gathers in summer is the guy with a side hustle. He's a barley farmer like everybody else in Israel. But, well, I mean, that only uses my time for half the year. If I were really thoughtful, I could plant some grapes and figs, perhaps around the edges of my field. And then I'd have something to do during the summer months as well. And even in the autumn, where the olives um, need harvesting. So gathers in summer, the prudence comes from... He's not stopped working when the work that he's kind of got to do has been done. He's looking for the next opportunity to do the next thing. Proverbs 13. A wise son hears his father's instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. From the fruit of his mouth, a man eats what is good, but the desire of the treacherous is for violence. Whoever guards his mouth preserves his life, but who opens... He who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. Notice the emphasis there on hearing is good, talking is bad. Why would that be? Well, it will be elucidated in the next passage, but there is an alternative to working hard, and it is talking about working hard. It's very striking that those three proverbs about hearing is good, not hearing, not listening to rebuke, just talking back in the face of rebuke is bad. Immediately followed by verse 4, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing. 
See the juxtaposition? The book of Proverbs is not just a random uh, assortment of uh, randomly arranged sayings. They actually flow together in sections. And the reason why the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, whereas the soul of the diligent is richly supplied, is because the sluggard is busily doing all the wrong things from verses 1 to 3. He's not going to listen. He's always got something to say, verse 3. And perhaps particularly uh, to allow us to expand that in Proverbs 26, one of the most uh, luminously painful depictions of the sluggard. The sluggard says, there's a lion in the road, there's a lion in the streets. As a door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard on his bed. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish, it wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. Now notice that last verse connects with the previous passage in Proverbs 13, doesn't it? In the sense that the sluggard has always got an answer. There are seven wise men around this sluggard, all of whom can answer sensibly his objections as to why he's just lying in bed and turning like a door on its hinges. So going nowhere, restlessly not resting, but not doing anything. All these seven men have something to say, seven the complete portfolio of wisdom that you could need, but you're smarter than them all, and you have a reason why. And the reason, of course, is found in verse 13. The sluggard says, there's a lion in the road, there's a lion in the street. Which, if true, would be a really good justification for not going out to work today. But the sluggard always has such a justification. And we're left wondering, well, maybe this guy's just unlucky. Maybe he just lives near the lions. But is it always really the case, always, that there's a lion in the road? I mean, ought he not to consider moving house at some point? There were lions in ancient Israel. But you notice the character of this uh, excuse. If true, it would genuinely make it impossible to go to work. But its truth cannot be verified by anybody else. It just seems to serve as a kind of permanent standing excuse for this guy not to do anything. And so what it, the reason I wanted to include this text today is because in a few minutes, in a minute or two, I'm going to ask you to talk to each other. And I'll just say it, okay? Somebody in your group of half a dozen people might say, in response to some of these challenges about working hard, yeah, but it's really hard for me because... And I want all the rest of you to say, there's a line in the road. Because what you start to notice after a few years in this business is that it's always the same people who've got excuses. And, brothers, I promise you that... There is nothing anybody can do for you if you have excuses for everything. If, if what we really, really want is to grow in maturity and to change and to become more fruitful in Christ's service, by his grace, we will be able to make progress. 
But if at every point what you see is the problem which has been the problem before, uh, there's a lion in the road. Nobody will be able to help you. Nobody can get rid of that lion. Uh, you might need to move house, metaphorically speaking. That is to say, you might need to make some serious changes. But don't let the lions be this perpetual excuse because you could starve to death in that house if you don't get out of it and do something. So with all that in mind, flip over the page if you would, very briefly. Uh, All I've done here is to repeat and then elucidate the five steps that we spent a good amount of time last year thinking about that great parents provide for their children and we must provide for ourselves. And I've elucidated them briefly in relation to the particular area of personal productivity in the workplace and in every other vocational responsibility. I should clarify, of course, work means not just what you get paid for. Work means all your other responsibilities to your family, to maintain your house uh, and relationships with other other people, all all the things that constitute your vocation. We can talk about that another time if you'd like to. Uh, And I'm not going to read through all of these, but what I invite you to do is to gather together in groups of about half a dozen people, and you can do this around your tables, just sort of shunt your chairs a bit closer together, and talk through these five areas of your life in relation to work. You're not going to be able to listen to each other and narrate all of your answers to this. That's five times six. That's 30 30 things. I mean, you're not going to be able to do that. But as you're talking to each other, as you're reflecting, uh, sketch things down here. And as you get closer to the bottom, you'll notice that uh, I'm asking you, number three, to think hard about what you could actually do about this. Number four, to figure out how you're going to identify whether you're succeeding or failing. And then number five, who's going to help you? No, sorry, number five, um, a, a final motivational moment. Stare in the face the worst thing that's going to happen to you if you do nothing and the best thing that could happen to you if, by God's grace, you take this opportunity to become more productive and fruitful in Christ's service. You all with me? So uh, groups of six or so people and begin, I think the best place to begin, obviously, is number one, and ask yourselves the question, in what ways do these proverbs call attention to practical shortcomings in your life, either at home or at work, and try and be as specific as you possibly can? All right, off you go. I'll call you back to order probably 20 maybe 25 minutes time.